I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Songbook, the White Rabbit podcast all about books about music. I'm Jude Rogers, journalist, broadcaster and author of the recently published White Rabbit book, The Sound of Being Human. How music shapes our lives. Today's guest is someone whose work I first encountered when I was revisiting my teenage love of Andrea Dunbar, writer of the plays The Arbor, Shirley, and Rita Sue and Bob Two. My guest's novel, Black Teeth and a Brilliant Smile, told the story of Dunbar's life with an energy and fire that absolutely fitted its subject. And my guest's always written about people who are celebrated all too briefly by the arty powers that be before being left to fend for themselves with all that entails. In 2019, she put together number 31 of the Rough Trade Edition series, Sweating Tears with a Fat White Family, cited as a revealing examination of the dysfunctional songwriting partnership at the heart of one of Britain's most unpredictable and controversial contemporary rock and roll bands. It involved squalor, cruelty, humour and love, and was the starting point for this year's brilliant White Rabbit book, 10,000 Apologies, Fat White Family and the Miracle of Failure. Hello, Adele Stripe, and welcome to Songbook. How are you? And where are you? Good morning, Jude. Uh, I'm in Hebden Bridge, up in the hills. It's an overcast day, uh, slightly warm, and um, I'm just looking forward to talking about music books. Good stuff. Um, I know you've been busy or writing busily at the moment on a new project that we can't speak about yet, but um, <laughs> I'm excited to read it. Um, before we kick off today's podcast uh, proper, though, tell us about 10,000 Apologies and the, the way it was written. I think that will also help introduce us to the book we're talking about today. Well, it was, um, it, as you said earlier, it emerged from uh, this edition that I'd done with Rough Trade Books in 2019 that was two long-form interviews with Leas and Saul from Fat White Family. And after that point, um, me and Leas started just chatting about the possibility of maybe working on something together that would be a, a biography of the band. And he'd read my previous book, Black Teeth, and actually I could see there were a few connections between Andrea Dunbar's story and Leas's mother's story, Michelle. Mm. And um, I guess we, we kind of started sharing a bit of material between each other. He was on tour with the band and he started sending me some tour diaries that were uh, very funny, very smart and quite accomplished for somebody who wasn't a writer and actually Lias is a voracious reader that's what he likes to do Mm. for fun so um the book really emerged from that period and we started thinking about how we might be able to weave two narratives together and he wrote memoir sections of the book that run through the, the chronology of the band's history up to the present day and it begins like Black Teeth and a Brilliant Smile, in the mills of West Yorkshire in 19, the late 1970s. And um, 
instead of the story of what happens when a playwright emerges from those circumstances, it's the story of what happens when a rock and roll band emerges mm. from that same place. And you've got um, in this combination of, you know, an outsider to this band, you know, a fan mm. of the band, but a writer looking in on the band, you know, kind of engaging with what's going on with them. And for this proper conversation with this artist, these two artists really is, is, is really interesting, slightly different to today's book, obviously, but um, I thought it was a nicer combination of things. I, um, I, 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 I need therapy from, from being the fly on the wall. Um, on, <laughs> <laughs> on fat white families tour bus <laughs> oh my goodness um, yeah yeah I mean it's 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 a very grubby murky place that I've been in lockdown um and, and it feels good <laughs> to be back out in the sunshine again <laughs> <laughs> now you say um that um Lias is a you know voracious reader I get the impression that you are as well just you know when I'm reading your stuff it you know it seems to be the product of somebody who's always had a book on a you know, on the armchair or in your pocket or in your bag, you know, um, you know, are you somebody who's always, you know, got 10 books on the go? Yes, unfortunately. Um, it comes with the territory, doesn't it? Um, yeah. I'm pretty good. <laughs> I'm quite disciplined, actually. And I tend to keep a log of which books I'm reading throughout the year. And then I look back at the end of the year and I think, oh, I've, I've read 50 books that I've kept track of. Uh, and probably wow. countless others that I've dipped into. So, so I, I think I, I try and get through a, a book a week if I can, if I'm disciplined. Um, yeah, I, it's just a part of my life, uh, something that I have to absorb in order to be a writer. What does it give you that's different from, you know, listening to music? You know, obviously, I know you're a writer, it's the words, but does it give you a kind of different space in your head um what does it give you I think it's it challenges you intellectually it makes you see different people's perspectives and think about subjects from a different angle um often contradicting what you may think about Mm. a particular thing Uh, but also uh, approaches to language uh, learning new phrases new words um and also trying to reinvent what you're doing as a writer all the time. So pushing yourself. Uh, there's a, there's a, a fear that you will become stagnant if you keep reading mm. the same types of books again and again and again. So I try and read books that are not like my own. You know, I'll, I'll try and read books that are translations or read books that are 150 years old, or read books about mm. history, or um, philosophy, you know, you know, just just really kind of trying to get out of my comfort zone. Having teaching piles of books next to you and trying to pull something new out is always a, a good strategy <laughs> yeah. to combat that. She says, looking around the absolute state <laughs> of my office at the moment. <laughs> so um, before I introduce the book proper, um, I'm going to ask you the three rapid fire questions I ask every guest. Um, who was the first musical artist or act you loved, first of all? Um, well, there are actually two, and it was at the same time. Um, first was Adam Ant. And, Fantastic. Um, uh, and uh, at the same time was the Stray Cats. Oh, right. Wow. <laughs> how, did you, how did you come across them? Well, I, I've got no idea because it, pre, it, it predates... Um, I don't know. It, it, it's so deep in my memory. I must have been about four years old and I can't really remember how I came across them, but I did have their album. So my mum 
bought me the Stray Cats album and I was, it must have been 81, I think, or around that time. So maybe I was about five. Um, and um, so I used for people to who don't it. know them, they're sort of rockabilly ish, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, yeah. And I used to yeah. stare at this cover of them all the time and I was completely obsessed. <laughs> and I would play this record over and over again. And I used to drive my parents insane with the Stray Cats. <laughs> and I would play Runaway Boys and the Stray Cat Strut. And the Stray Cat Strut is a, it's still a wonderful song. It's fantastic. Yeah. I still yeah. get a kick from listening to it now. It's, it's, it's brilliant. And I have to ask Adamant, you know, what was the introduction to them? It was the kind of pantomime side of it. But as I got older and when I got into punk in my teens, I discovered the earlier Adam Adam and the Ants Mm. music. And I really, really love that. So um, on Derek Jarman's Jubilee, uh, Adamant makes a cameo in that. And he sings Plastic Surgery. And and that song is absolutely banging. It's great. And I love Dirk Wears White Socks. Um, So it's not just the kind of later fun Adamant that I like. I, I really like the early stuff as well. Yeah. I remember feeling quite disturbed when I found that earlier stuff, you know, these childhood memories of this, uh, you know, garishly dressed, you know, uh, fairy tale prince kind of uh, yeah. me. I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. but still intriguing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> so who was the first writer about music that you loved? Well, I mean, it really, really pains me to say this, but it, it was um, a book called The Boy Looked at Johnny by uh, Julie Birchall and Tony Parsons. And it was a short, short book. Um, It was the obituary of rock and roll. And, Mm. um, you know, they were the hip young gunslingers, weren't they? And reading this book really was the first time that I thought about writing about music. And maybe it was something that I could do. And I loved the opinionated spitting vicious tone um to to this uh to this book and it it's only short I mean it's like 75 pages or something um and I don't know there was just elements within that that connected with me and I thought maybe I maybe I could do that you know mm-hmm. so so I guess um despite what became of the pair in later life um that was something that really connected with me when I was about 15 yeah um do you know what I've never read it it's um 1978 of kind of looking here and there was kind of that you know the prime punk era where it has crossed over to the mainstream and everybody knew what it was but um yeah I will try and dig that out one day it's kind of one of those things are quite hard to find find these days so was that the first music book you loved as well Actually, it, well, it leads on to, to, to what was um, the first music book that, that really meant something um, to me. And I, I have a copy of it here. It's the original copy that I had around the and it was around the same time as reading The Boy Looked at Johnny. And it's England's Dreaming by John Savage. Oh, and yeah. um, it, it's um, a very battered copy that I used to carry around with me everywhere. And it was my Bible. Um, and I would read it um, over and over again. And actually, I, the reason why I can tell that it's my original copy is that it's got my really bad teenage poetry written in the back in pencil. Oh, amazing. Can you read us <laughs> some now? <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I 
can read you some. Do you want to? Do you want to? Yeah, hear please. It? Oh, please do. Good. Okay. Well, this was written in the Merrion Centre in Leeds, um, and I was fifteen <laughs> or sixteen. Um, I'll just read you an extract from this joyous oh, on. piece of, of exclusive of exclusive material from Adele. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, stinks of piss. Wrinkly old men with flat caps winking at girls scuttling past. James last on the stereo. High-pitched noise, like after a wedding present gig. In a stinky, shitty little pub. Got a tenner nicked in here once. It was a bad downer due to not having any beer money. Got to kill an hour in Leeds. Suppose I could sit here and listen to the couple behind talking about their dead neighbour and the colour of the pigeon who's pecking at some trampled-in quavers. Deep shit tomorrow morning. Too much skiving. But it's boredom and screaming second years that keep me away from the prison on the hill. I'd rather be here, all alone, in a derelict shopping arcade with a skiddy floor and lots of carpet shops. Amazing. <laughs> That's fantastic. Is there going to be a whole volume of this stuff? I would read this. No. <laughs> I have to say, that is far more sophisticated than my uh, 15-year-old uh, poems to Michael Stipe. I tell you, you know, they live a bit more, uh, you know, uh, mine are much more pretentious and... Uh, yeah, it, but um, I think I did write a few poems by the Working Men's Club I grew up two doors down next to. But um, it was generally, yeah, the old men in flat caps were probably the same vintage, just, you know, South Wales yeah. rather than North Yorkshire. But, yeah, so Fantastic. that's in my copy of, of, of England Streaming. And then Ben, my husband, also has a copy of England Streaming, which sits next to it on the shelf. And his is equally battered. And he used to carry his around <laughs> At the same time. So we were destined to be together. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Now on to today's book. Now this is a book, oh gosh, I'm sure I read it in my early 20s when I was living in, you know, damp and dingy basement flat across London. So many passages were familiar as I've been revisiting it in the last few weeks. But reading it also feels a bit like a fever dream. (laughs) So I'm not sure, you know, have I remembered this, have I not? Um, It was first published in 1992. 10 years after the events that begin this book, when a legendary figure of the 1960s, and I know legendary is overused, but it's appropriate here because she's so, this kind of mythical character. She's living in a suburban cul-de-sac in southern Manchester with a heroin habit. She is introduced to the author by a friend of his um, who is looking to restart her career um, and puts together a band to take her on tour. What follows is a chaotic journey through curtain darkened living rooms, shabby venues, rehearsal rooms at home and abroad. There's John's to Beverly Hills and the Redwoods. Um, there's lots of cigarette burnt leatherette sofas, uh, desperation, and also humour. Um, today's book is James Young's Nico, Songs They Never Play on the Radio, published by Bloomsbury. Now, um, when I approached you to do this podcast, Adele, you suggested a few books, but this is the one I thought, yes, let's do this one. Tell me <laughs> how you came across this book. Oh, um, I think it, Ben had um, a copy of it or um, it, one was sent to him. It was republished by, I think they were called Fortune Teller Press, uh, probably in 2008 or 2009. And I had heard of it, but... Oddly, I'd never read it, and I have read pretty much every book on Nico and or the Velvet Underground. So I was really mm. surprised um, that I hadn't read this particular uh, edition. Um, I was um, I gobbled it up. 
when I read it the first time round, and I, I loved it. And it's been interesting to go back and reread it again now, um, because I had such a, such a strong memory of some of the scenes in the book, and actually mm. I'd completely misremembered them. Um, <laughs> so, so you can't really trust your memory, can you? Um, so no. I um, yeah. So so really, I think it's. It's a record of Manchester in the 1980s um, that has, has re- rarely been spoken about. Manchester music is dominated by men. Uh, all of the books mm. are about men in the Manchester scene. It gets pretty tedious after a while. Um, and you wonder, were there any women at all uh, in the Manchester <laughs> scene? And if not, why have they been never recorded? Why have they been written out? Um, and so in a way this book is it probably explains um a lot about the kind of scene and actually it's quite a it's quite a misogynistic and sexist scene mm. i think mm. um that of that of that time it's very much of that time and nico ends up living in prestwich because she hears that dr dimitriou which is based on alan wise who is a kind of uh, a, a large figure in the manchester music um she heard that alan wise uh, his family owned a chain of chemists and she thought that would be a really good way to get a decent supply of heroin <laughs> so that's why she moves to Prestwich um, and ends up having Alan as her manager. And he does he does kind of take care of her in a very peculiar way. And I guess this book is about, um, it's an unrequited love story, isn't it? Between the two of them. They kind of, mm, yeah. they, they bicker and um, he's obsessed with her. He loves her yeah. and she, there is absolutely no way that she loves him. But at the same time, she relies upon him for quite a lot. Um, he, you know, I think if you look at some of the other artists that he was looking after, he took very difficult artists under his wing. So along with Nico, you had The Fall, John Cooper Clark, yeah. Gil Scott Heron and Johnny Thunders. So, you know, I think mm. he kind of gravitated to these incredibly difficult characters. Um, yeah. He himself was was an addict. He was a Valium addict. And I think he kind of perhaps thought that he could he could help Nico in some way. But obviously, um, that kind of turns upside down when she moves to Prestwich. And you realise that her situation is um is not one she's going to get out of easily and so the mm. book really is is a record of her trying to survive um told through the the viewpoint of James Young who was her keyboard player and um they end up just touring around Europe and around the UK playing the shittiest gigs you know and and, mm. she, and also she's getting judged because she looks quite different to how she looked during the Velvet Underground period um mm. she's changed like she looks she looks very different her hair is hennaed she's wearing black she, she kind of came up with that prototype goth look um and i think people were judging her for looking different and if you read jen otter bickerdyke's book or um of yes Nico, that came last out on faber last year 
Yeah, that is all yeah. about um, her being judged for not being beautiful anymore. And mm. I think it's it, it, that is really, it, it, it does crop up in this book, you know. Oh, look, she's a faded beauty. Um, and actually never been taken seriously for the artist that she was. And she was a great artist. I mean, some of those albums are yeah. phenomenal. A desert oh, shore. goodness, yeah. Um, the Marble Index. Um, Marble Index, my God, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, John Cale said that that album, it's an artifact, not a commercial commodity. You can't sell suicide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's one of those records that, oh, my goodness, I remember when it was reissued maybe when I was in my 20s. You heard and you were like, I, I can't listen to it really it's very often so these heavy. days. It's so yeah <laughs> it's so yeah. heavy um and then obviously she's trying to make music as well in the 1980s yeah. 80s but she's washed up she's got no money at all she hasn't had any royalties eventually she did get her royalties towards the end of the 1980s and by this point she went onto a methadone program she got clean and then within two mm. weeks of leaving Prestwich um she ends up in Ibiza goes to Ibiza for a very short period and dies of a brain hemorrhage you know, yeah. so, so her life had finally uh, turned around. She turned the corner, yeah. and then um, and then she died. It's funny. The edition I've got has a you know classic, beautiful picture of Nico in the nineteen sixties on it. You know, this you know with her amazing eyelashes and her stern expression, yeah. um, and you know the idea of I don't want. I was wondering how um, you thought of her when you first knew her. Did you get lost in the sort of myth of Nico as well? I'm, I'm only asking because I know I did. You know, I was one of those classic kids of the late 90s who got a, you know, re- CD reissue of The Velvet Underground and Nico, you know, for, on a three for two deal in Virgin <laughs> or something like that. You know, yeah. pick up this, you know, bit of countercultural lifestyle, you know, in your, in your sale, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, it was her and, image. Um, her image was so powerful. Um, and that voice combined yeah, with it yeah yeah and and so I had like a, an idea of, of of what Nico was like and I'd read quite a lot of books around uh, about the Velvet Underground and and the Dick Witts book Nico um which came out in the 90s uh, oh I haven't read a, that that's a very different version of Nico uh to the one that James Young puts forward mm. um but as a piece of literature I think songs they never play on the radio. It, it's um, it's a pretty powerful portrait of the rock mm. and roll lifestyle and just the horror of it. You know, I mean, this is this is a grim, dirty, uh, grotesque book um, about music, and it's it's really about tearing down this image of her and and yeah. showing what was really going on. Um, and it's it's about that kind of uh, dark, junky life that she was um, having to having to live through um, in her later years. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The detail and the anecdotes, you know, of, um, you know, them going between gigs and you know, there's a lot of humor in it as well, as I mentioned, you know, there's just Nico just saying, you know, about how Leonard Cohen broke her wrist out of nowhere. And then she's little things about, you know, she's eating chocolate and listening to Chopin and then all of a sudden then something really grim happens. You know, it's this combination yeah. of little one-liners that jump out and, um, yeah. and you know, the, 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 you know, the incessant, you know, drug addiction is, you know, it's, it's quite a hard read and, but it's not glamorized in any way. No way think. at all. Yeah. Um, so, so there's a section in the book where um, they're describing Ephra Road, which is the flat yes. that they end up living in, in Brixton with John Cooper Clark and Alan Wise uh, rents this flat for her to live in. And she has a Coke can by her bedside and she has um, quite severe catarrh because she's a chain smoker. And she coughs up into this Coke can by her by her bed. And then Alan Wise takes a swig from it. And it's just this really horrible, disgusting detail. But actually, it, it does tell us something about her the state of her life at that time um and I think there's a lot of humor that runs through the book and yeah um, it made me think about that George Bernard Shaw quote if you're going to tell people the truth better make them laugh otherwise they'll kill you yes <laughs> yes that's true actually without the humor I think it would be a very tough thing to to get through but yeah there's lots of you know just the sort of knockabout humour of it. It's sort of like the the darkest moments of where Nail and I like turned up to, you know, 114 or something like that. It just it has that sort of real dirt under his fingernails, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's really tragic comic. And I think certainly the Alan Wise character, Dr. Demetrio, uh, is, um, is very different to Nico. Um, you know, he, he sees himself as an impresario. I've, I've got a friend who knew him quite well. And he said that, um, you know, every year he held a creditor's ball to acknowledge those who he owed money to in Manchester and had no chance of getting it back. Um, he was a really cack-handed promoter, but he was affectionately chaotic, never fully competent and always short of funds. Um, but he did not have a malicious or corrupt bone in his body, unlike many of his music promoting peers. <laughs> So I, I think that sort of tells us a little bit about him, but he's also a total sleaze bag. This guy, and, yeah. and and that really runs through the book. You know, it's all like porn mags and prostitutes and striptease shows, and it's always like Doctor Demetrius going off and and has yeah. to go and pick up like this or that. And, and, and I don't know. It's so it's got this real kind of grubbiness to it, um, but. I don't know if you've seen Carol Morley's The Alcohol Years, her film. No, I haven't. Okay, so Carol Morley's film is a documentary about her revisiting her younger drunken self and 
going trying to find out all the people she slept with, the, the situation she got into growing up in Manchester in the 80s. And one of the people who was one of her previous conquests was Alan Wise. And so she goes and interviews Alan Wise in this film to talk about what she was like when she was younger because she has no memory of it because she was drinking so heavily. So she's Mm. trying to patch together her past. And I think The Alcohol Years is a really good bookend to songs they never play on the radio. Um, I think actually you should go and watch Carol's film after you read this book oh, I will. To, to, to give you an overview of um, of of that time. Yeah, oh, I will do. I will do. I, I do love her stuff. I've not I've not seen that one. Nico was an artist in the Velvet Underground. You know, tell me about you know what made you gravitate towards them when you were younger. You know, they're such a you know band that a lot of people gra- um, gravitate towards. You know, I remember finding them just like nothing, I couldn't quite comprehend what they were. And I think that's what interested me in them. I also had, um, this is my party anecdote. I have to get this out um, about the Velvet Underground. Um, When I was 18, you know, I kind of grew up in a, you know, fairly, you know, I was fairly square and swatty as a kid, you know, bottles of hooch and the occasional silk cut was my kind of poison. Um, And I did violin lessons and I played in the local orchestra and all this stuff, you know, to go on tours and, you know, and, you know, try and meet boys, but they weren't particularly exciting. <laughs> anyway, I had a violin teacher um, who was quite old and he's at 80s. And um, when I finished my lessons with him before I went off to university, he would, uh, we went for, I went around his for tea and he was telling me about a student he'd had. He's had the favourite students and he had one who was quite strange and he was from near Ammonford. <laughs> um, and, and when he was a teenager, he taught him to play the viola because he thought he'd be quite good at it. And he went off to America and I don't know what he did. You know, he was in a band <laughs> called The Velvet or something. And I'm like 18 years old going, what? You know, and this is, yeah, I know, exactly. Just shit. And I was like, Don, Don. Yeah, they're, they're really important. He said, oh, I don't think they sold many records. I don't think they were that famous. Ah, ah, trying to convince this, you know, 84-year-old man. <laughs> um, of the importance of John Cale in, um, you know, popular music. And, well, you know, it's just they're shaking. It was so weird. Um, and a year later, um, Don died um, and I went to his funeral. I was like, come on, John Cale in this little chapel in, you know, in Pentlegare in um, in uh, South Wales. And he didn't sadly turn up. But I've interviewed John twice since. Oh, have you? Once for Word magazine. Yeah. And um, he was quite terrifying you know he's um got this amazing accent which is you know new york with a touch of uh Ammonford, which is sort of um it's, it's not valleys people say, say it's valleys but it's a sort of mid wales heavy accent yeah um but i said um do you remember a man called don priest the first thing i said to him and he really threw him <laughs> and i kind of explained and 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 after that we got on fine and i also interviewed yeah, yeah. him at the green man festival where i have to say he did the best imp- um full body um impression of Bez from the Happy Mondays that I've ever seen. He he did um, produce the first Happy Mondays record. But you know, John Cale in this is such a great character as well, you know, as a character, you know, the the, the real people do feel like characters, you know, because yeah. you can't really imagine that they're from real life in a way. Yeah, I mean the dialogue just just snaps all the way through it. It's oh, really yeah. funny. And actually they are I would say that 
um you know the 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 accents are amped up and every the way that everybody they are. <laughs> is amped up i mean the, the welsh the nico drawl you know just, just i mean some of it is it kind of is a little bit too much in places but it does work overall and it makes the book um the the uh, entertaining read that it is and it is entertaining it's, I mean, I mean, I know we're talking about some of the darker aspects here, but it, it, it is very funny and you'll probably tear through it in a night. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what? Because I gave you my anecdote about John Cale, I didn't actually get you to answer the question about why the Velvet Underground <laughs> attracted you, why Nico attracted you. I, I, I think um, what initially attracted me to them was the uh, visual uh, element. And I, I came at it through the Andy Warhol angle. And I was kind of obsessed with him when I was a teenager and thought I might become a, maybe become an artist or something. And I used to try and do Andy Warhol style prints um, in the art class at school. Um, And so I guess that was my way in. And um, I, I was an obsessive reader of the music press. So I used to read Melody Maker, Enemy every week and obviously like Select and Sky Magazine and all of those kind of things yeah. that we read in the 90s. Oh, Sky Magazine, that's um, another one I've yeah. <laughs> And so I, I think I just probably read about the Warhol connection to them, but I really loved that mm. visual visual sense that they had and I started reading books about the 1960s and I found that New York scene was particularly interesting to me. Uh, I liked mm. the kind of harder edge to it. And um, yeah, I just I just managed I had friends who were older, who had good music collections and and they would play me their records and and then they would do a cassette tape for me. And um, that's really how I fell into becoming a fan. And then um, when I went to art college, I started thinking about um, the exploding plastic inevitable and how you could create interiors that 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 reflected what the factory looked like so I started making rooms out of silver foil and the you know the floating pillows and projections and working with super eight and all of those things kind of fed into um the uh, creative environment that I was in at the time and so uh, the music the music was part of that so yeah it started quite young really um and I loved Nico's look I just oh, thought yeah. she always looked fabulous, you know. Um, she always she had these wonderful cheekbones, and I loved her steely presence. Mm. How she looked like she would not, you know, brook any shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just hoped. I was like, maybe one day I'll look like Nico. Obviously, I was never going to look like Nico, but I still have the Nico haircut. I've never been able to get rid of it. <laughs> Um, obviously, you've written a book about a band for whom drugs are important. You know, they are important to them. You know, um, you you call them brilliantly a drug band with a rock problem, which is a line for the ages. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, what the challenges are about writing about drugs around a band. You know, you know it could be very easy to glamorise their appeal. You know, um, how did you kind of approach that with your book? And, you know, th- this book tackles it in an interesting way as well um I think 
drugs are um, a product of something else that's going on in a person's life. So a lot of the time they might have like a trauma or um, I don't know, something that's happening and the drugs come secondary to that or the alcohol comes secondary to that. So addiction tends mm. to follow some kind of element of childhood trauma or personal trauma. Um, and so I knew that the members of the band had all had disrupted childhoods, um, mental health problems, and the drugs kind of came in to their lives and absorbed them. And then um, I had to write about this in a way that didn't glamorise the drug use at all, but it was an integral part of, of that band and what they were doing. Um, it's just part of everyday life for them. Um, but mm. these are quite extreme situations that they end up in and the drugs are pretty extreme too but you have to write about it but not in a way that makes it sound cool and hopefully um, it doesn't sound cool in my book and I don't think it sounds cool in songs they never play on the radio either. Mm. I wanted to ask about um, uh, James Young's role as well in this book you know, there's a, the, I think I can't remember this early on or later on in the book yeah I think it's after Nico dies they're talking about how you know there shouldn't be a book written about those years you know let's agree not to write a book about it you know and obviously that is putting the book with heavy levels of irony because four years later out this comes um you know it's you know there could be a feeling of exploitation in there and you know as you've said before there is some misogyny in there there is you know there are some elements of it that probably wouldn't pass muster with an editor mm. today yeah but there's a yeah, there's a sort so. of honesty to it there's a yeah. kind of very blunt actually, honesty to it frankly i think nobody comes out of the nico book looking good <laughs> they're, they're all appalling characters no there is there are no redeeming characters in this book whatsoever and i think because of that um, it makes it more palatable because you think, well, everyone's mm. getting a drubbing, including the writer himself. You know, he's, he doesn't make yes, himself look good either. So I think there's an equality there. <laughs> yeah. I do like a book where there are lots of unlikable characters. And, you know, I've had arguments with some friends. Oh, I couldn't read that. Everybody's so unlikable. I couldn't watch that on TV. Everybody's so unlikable. And it's like, well, you know, we're not ask you're not asking to be their friends. You know, they're on a page or they're on a screen, you know, and they're interesting. And yeah. You know, you can, that's that's life. <laughs> it is, yeah. And thank goodness we didn't have to live it. We can just read about it vicariously. <laughs> Any other people whose failures you'd like to read about that you haven't read about already? I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I like to, to hear about... Uh, I don't really want to hear about success. Um, I think the, the music books that work really well for me in recent times... I mean, I loved Brett Anderson's book, Cold Black Mornings... Because mm. it's all about what happens up to the point where suede begin. Uh, and mm. yeah. it's, re it's really about his early life. And I, I really enjoyed that because I'd, music book, music biographies can just be um, quite obvious, I think, in terms of how they're structured, yeah. how the story is told. Um, I listen a lot to this podcast called Disgraceland. I don't know if you've heard Disgraceland. No. And that's really about the kind of vile aspects of rock and roll, jazz, hip hop and blues. And um, it's it's told in a way that, that, that really goes into the, the bleaker moments and bypasses the success. 
of these acts. So the one on Miles Davis in particular is really, really good. Uh, but Miles okay. Davis was a was was not a nice man, you know, from all accounts. Goodness, I yeah. <laughs> I don't think I would have um, wanted to have hung out with him, but I love his music and I like reading about him. I find him fascinating. Um, I did a chapter um, uh, for a book called Under My Thumb a few years ago, which is women write about music that was, uh, you know, hashtag problematic. Ah. Um, and I wrote about revisiting pulp, actually, um, ah. when I was a bit older and realising that some of the stuff I found very sexy, you know, now as a, you know, as a yeah. mother of an eight-year-old, uh, I'm like, oh, goodness, well, you know, this is a... Like babies. <laughs> you go back and you listen to babies. Or, I mean, I love yeah. she- Sheffield Sex City is my favourite pulp song. Oh, I think I, it's I think amazing. It's yeah. Absolutely incredible. But, like, I go back and listen to it now and I'm like, oh, would this come out now <laughs> in, in 2022? Yeah. I don't think it would. Yeah. You know, I don't yeah, think they get, yeah. I don't think pulp would get away with putting out yeah. some of those songs now. But I'm and glad they did it at the be, time. Goodness, there's a whole other podcast. In yeah. That. Um, <laughs> just to finish, as a whole, how would you sum up how the book inspired you as a writer? I don't know. I guess tonally, um, it did feed in 10,000 apologies. Um, the tragicomic aspect of it, the characterization, the humour and the bleakness. Um, I definitely think that fed into the new book. But I was also thinking about Hellfire by Nick Toskes as well, which is is another book um, that, that really kind of captures the essence of the character and the man um but doesn't and that's about jerry lee lewis isn't it about jerry lee lewis and it doesn't go down yeah. the traditional route of rock biography it's very much like a novel it's very novelistic and um that's another one you introduced me to when you were talking a sea change i thought ah right i'm gonna have to ask adele <laughs> yeah. to, come, to come on songbook um thank you so much adele for sharing nico songs they never play on the radio with me and yeah it's published by bloomsbury paperbacks so a few final questions for you. You've already mentioned some other books um, that are worth us buying and reading. Um, when we were messaging before, you also mentioned one about Lord Kitchener I'd love you to tell yes. the listeners about because I miss this. Yeah, yeah. So um, this is a book that I came across a few years ago and it's by Anthony Joseph. It's a fictional biography of Lord Kitchener and it's really written... Um, through very different viewpoints of uh, uh, people who knew Lord Kitchener. So uh, it's almost, it almost reads like an oral history. So you have um, his ex-lovers, his ex-wife, um, people who were his friends, people who were his enemies, um, and they all give a different view of Lord Kitchener. Um, who And it really captures the complexity of the man. Uh, it's very interesting because it's partly set in Manchester so he moves to Moss Side and mm. um, he ends up uh, m- marrying a white woman and there's this experience of the two of them being a mixed race couple in Manchester at that time and the kind of uh, challenges that they faced uh, but actually the language is so rich and, and the imagery is so rich it really captures the essence of Calypso. Uh, so the music 
uh, runs through it. But it's not like a boring kind of account of going into a studio and how a particular song was made and all of the musicians he worked with. It's more about his kind of daily life. Um, and it's, um, I just think it's a wonderful piece of writing. And it is probably one of my favourite music books that I've read um, in the past 10 years. It's on People Tree Press, which is a, a Leeds publisher. And um, it's just a phenomenal music book. And I think everybody should go and read it. It's wonderful. Fantastic. So that's Kitch, a fictional biography of a Calypso icon by Anthony Joseph. And finally, given that music is at the heart of this podcast, um, I'm asking people to recommend what I'm calling a book song, which is a bit daft, <laughs> a book song for us, inspired by a work of literature. What did you choose? I have chosen End of the Night by The Doors, which was um, uh, inspired by Celine's Journey to the End of Night, um, which uh, I, don't, I don't know. Actually, there's some lines from Blake in the song. Um, but I do, I do really, really love that Doors song. It's one of my favourites, and I think it was a maybe a B side or something. Um, I am a very big Doors fan, um, and um, I think that's kind of one of their one of their best songs. Um, but that was the one that popped up, and and I do love the Celine book as well. It's uh, yeah one of, one of the great works of European literature. Fantastic. We've got a great list of songs. Um coming now and it's great great addition to it thank you Adele yeah thanks so much um for coming on songbook today it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you Adele's book 10,000 Apologies Fat White Family and the Miracle Failure is out now published by White Rabbit um thanks for listening please like and subscribe etc etc and join us next week for another great guest see you then thank you so much for listening to songbook you can find links to the books mentioned in this episode, as well as our Spotify playlist, in the episode description. Songbook is presented by me, Jude Rogers. It's produced by me and Alice Lloyd. It's edited and mixed by Dan Jones, and our music is by the one and only David Holmes. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.